Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your co-host today along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we talk with David Wolf, co-author of The Fix for Cravings and co-founder of Sugar X. Once an artisan bread maker and registered dietitian, David left those careers and is now a food addiction counselor and food addiction coach, as well as a certified by performance coach. David received his master's in clinical nutrition from Ohio State University in 2012 and worked as a registered dietitian for 10 years in critical care, bariatric surgery, and elderly care. He was also the dietitian to design the abstinent food plan for the food addiction residential program at Renaissance pre-COVID. While a dietitian, David received his food addiction training at Infact, otherwise known as the International Food Addiction and Counseling Training Program, in 2017 and since then has been the understudy for Bitten Johnson. He is currently a faculty member for her Holistic Medicine for Addiction program. Of special interest to us, David had his own battles with sugar and grain and, like many of us, has identified other struggles, namely coffee, screens, alcohol, and more. David is co-author of the groundbreaking work The Fix for Cravings, along with Cynthia Myers-Morrison. He is a vocal advocate for understanding addiction interaction disorder, championing the idea that addiction is a singular beast with many masks. His favorite analogy is, Switching outlets is like switching seats on the Titanic. The ship is still sinking. Thus, his treatment is focused on changing the whole dynamic of addiction. As visionary co-founder of SugarX Global, David offers an online food addiction recovery platform using his holistic blueprint of what he calls CARE, C-A-R-E, Connection, Action, Recovery, Protection, and Education. Welcome, David. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Vera. Okay. Well, it's a thrill to be here. We always start with a uh, personal question. What made you get into the field of food addiction, especially being a prior bread maker? So I had no idea I had a problem for most of my life because I had behaviors, but I was always a normal weight. So I think, honestly, I was in training with Esther Helga and she said to me, you might be an early stage food addict. And I, I said, okay. And like family history up the wazoo. So, okay. I just consented to it. And, and so I think that is what brought me out of denial for my own addiction. But I always just wanted to help people who were like my mom because they didn't have the help. And I was treating food addicts before I knew I was a food addict. It's funny, but it, that, that was my experience. And that's how I came out of denial personally for myself and started to actually apply some of the stuff to me because I would I thought I was immune because I was always small. I met you when I needed a dietitian that was food addiction friendly for the Renaissance food program when we were building that. And there you were and you were so helpful without even knowing it. you really had an intuitive sense what was going on. None of that typical resistance of the dietitian. Oh, you can't do this. You have to whatever. Even before you identified yourself. But let me So that was right around the time where I started to accept the concept that, wow, this might be me and this might be what I have to do. Do you still make bread? I have to ask you that question. No, I don't. <laughs> 
I will be honest with you. I have two KitchenAids. There, there's a like a little compartment under my house. They're collecting dust. I haven't had the heart to give them away yet, but I certainly don't intend to use them anytime soon or at all. One of them's in antique. Okay, that's like me and some rare bottles of wine that I used to think one day I'll have those. I can't throw them away, but they definitely are probably vinegar. Okay, anyway, so I don't know if you actually described your aha moment, or was it just? As- yeah, it was just like it was just basically. She was like, based on the screening, you're is very likely you're an illicit food addict, and it was. Just like I didn't have any denial left. I just didn't have any left. It was just like, oh yeah. Like, I mean, I would walk down the stairs at five and grab, there was a a box with six packs of fruit snacks in it. I'd eat five because I didn't want to eat the last one. And then I'd hide the wrappers under the couch. That was like, I would kindergarten age. So it was like, it wasn't like, it wasn't like earth shattering. When you like start to look back, you're like, oh yeah, check, check, check. Yeah. Just, that was it. I just surrendered at least to the concept. It's not when I got clean, but that's when I surrendered to the concept that this was really going on in my life. And I, this was me. But it almost sounds like you're describing the result of the normalization of our food behaviors. I don't know if it was normal, but I did it. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people do, but that was like the hiding and stuff that was like putting stuff in the trash, but like underneath other stuff or like hiding food in the freezer at the bottom and like digging it back out and having to hide it back again, like all that stuff. What made you leave nutrition itself? Because you no longer do that, you said. Yeah. So what had happened was I didn't feel, I I didn't feel an integrity with my field, fell out of integrity with it because of the things that I was doing and the things that they were doing. Uh I tell you where I ended my career as a dietitian, what technically was in elderly care. And one hand, I was helping addicts by night. And then I was like literally feeding the disease of addiction by day, right? We were like, supplementing people and you would see and i worked in a locked alzheimer unit a huge unit had, i think i had like 80 beds it was a really big unit and you would see what would happen they would almost it almost appeared like they were medicating people down with food like they were trying to get behavior or improvement in behavior through food and so food had become such a part of the culture and so I think I ultimately had this big, it was like a fight, a conscious fight. What do I do? And at that point, I, I think I at least subconsciously decided that I probably wouldn't practice as an RD for much longer. I did let my license lapse ultimately. So I, I did use it here and there until it was gone. But yeah. yeah, I don't carry for it as a registered dietitian anymore. And I think if most dietitians are honest with themselves, there's a dilemma. We interviewed Michelle Hearn. Michelle yeah. Hearn, yeah. The, the, yeah. The dietitian's dilemma. Yeah. You're and so I think if we're honest, yeah. and most RDs were honest with themselves and the information that they're being given and that if they follow the evidence-based guidelines that they do have, it is improving. It is. Drastically in the last five to 10 years, it's improved a lot. But if they follow the guidelines, people end up with metabolic illness. And so that's a problem. I'm just curious because I know you're a parent and I know there's lots of listeners that are also in the parent role and they struggle with food addiction. And how did you raise your kids and how did you deal with your recovery in sharing family meals with them? How does that work for you? It's a loaded question. And I think, to be completely honest, me and my wife eat totally differently. We just do. I have... I have a child, she's four, she's almost five, and she has what I believe to be probably an addictive personality. I don't want to declare that, she's very small. And I have another one who just loves to eat meat. It's just, my kids do have their sugar around and it's in the pantry and it's on the counter. There's a banana bread 
on my counter right now that was baked yesterday. It just, but it doesn't talk to me. And unless, maybe if I'm bored, I'll open a cabinet where I don't belong, but it's just, what are you doing? And then I shut the cabinet door and I continue on with the life that I live today, which is wonderful. So I think, but I think as a parent, it's difficult because you have dependents, like I, they depend on me to make decisions for them and help them, but also free will. And, and also the kind of this dynamic was if we force our concepts and ideas on children, we can actually create much bigger problems. So I'm hoping one day that if they end up like me, they come to me and they know what I've been through and how I got through it and that they'll see guidance. But I feel like I'm also powerless over what happens. But it is, it's a constant juggle and you pick the battles that are important to you. And I think our culture makes it very easy to encourage snacking, Mm -hmm. um, drugging, let's call it drugging. Caregivers go to it to appease or to minimize stress in the household, in the car. Yeah, that's the culture we're up against. So it's a challenge for sure. Yeah, I think that's helpful because I think that a lot of individuals who we support, they change the way they're eating and then they feel really bad about feeding their kids these ways and like exposing them to these foods and the dangers that they experienced. And again, it's all about understanding that we all have a different relationship with it and that you can and are there to support them through it if you do start to notice maybe some signs and symptoms that need some addressing. And yeah, it sounds like you're doing the best for your kids and that's great to hear, David. It was really surprising. I think Mike Collins from the Quit Sugar Summit was uh, really surprised. He had me on to do the, the summit he did for children and he was really shocked to find out that, like my kids eat sugar. And it's just, I think it's a reality. Eventually, they're probably going to get it. And if they're as addicted as I was, then it's not going to take many for them to realize that it's going to change their mood. And I don't know. I don't think there's anything you can do with the environment that we live in. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about Sugar X Global and what it offers people like you were one of the creators and co-visionaries. So tell us what is Sugar X Global? Who is it for? What services do you have offer? Yeah. When we started, basically, we actually, we were trying to establish uniform pricing for the U.S. for the sugar tool, which bit on Johnson trains and dispenses. And a bunch of people that were in her holistic medicine for addiction program, which included my mom and Sean and Cindy Myers-Morrison together. And we were uniform pricing. And then basically what happened was we bought a handle. We just, I wasn't even part of the picture. They just bought a website. And, and then we were like, okay, what do we want to do? And I think when we started to meet, the main thing we came together to decide was we want to eliminate the shame and the guilt that is associated with the disease of addiction. We want, I want you to be able to go and seek help for addiction like you would if you broke your foot and you were going to the ER. That's what we want to do. And then we basically, so we had this end in mind. That's what we want to establish. And then we just work backwards and we ask ourselves, what do we need? What needs to happen in order to make that a possibility? So we just engineered backwards. And so we ended up really struggling to figure out like, how are we going to manifest something that people could latch onto and tap into in order to get really started in their recovery and blast past just like those sticky points that are are so common in the beginning. And then we ended up running a five-day challenge. This was like at the heart of COVID. It was, yeah, it was in the spring after COVID had broken the, the fall before. And I think people were just like so isolated. And we know addiction is isolating. So anyway, so... 
what do we do is we basically came up with this thing called CARE. So what CARE is connection, action steps, recovery, protection, and education. So we believe those are the main four pillars that people need to really invest and embody in order to start to get better. So we know that addiction is isolating and alienating, which means that an addict in their drug is going to feel alone, surrounded by people that love them, which is just, a, it's just like a this huge dichotomy. And, and that's what people struggle with. So we wanted to help them overcome that. So that was the connection piece. They needed to connect with people that were like them and that understood what their struggles were, that could relate with them, that could help them challenge the denial, help them challenge the things that they were facing. And then we came up with, okay, they need action steps. They need to know what to do. I think so many people are connected even with the right people, but they don't know what to do, how, what kind of, because I was thinking about it this morning because I knew I was going to be talking to you. Like, like what is, what are the benefits of recovery? And it's, they're really just the benefits of habits. Once we know what the habits are, we can condition ourselves to get really good results. Okay. And then we know that addiction is a condition that often leads to relapse. So we wanted to, and the way that we look at it is that relapse and addiction are, um, rather, relapse and recovery are on a continuum. They're on a long. So you're either working yourself towards recovery or you're working yourself towards a relapse. You can't be moving in both directions simultaneously. It's one or the other, right? And often people perceive relapse as picking up a drug, whereas our view is much different. We feel like relapse ends when you pick up a drug and then you're back in active addiction. So we don't like the concept of relapse prevention. We love the concept. We hate the phrasing. We don't like it. It almost sounds like inevitable, like that you're always going to be preventing a relapse. But in reality, if it's on a continuum, we look at it like you're, no, you're, you're establishing protection and your recovery. You're moving closer to recovery. Therefore, you are technically preventing relapse. But what you're really doing is protecting what you've gained. And then education, the disease of addiction, when to manipulate you, you need to stay ahead of the curveball. You have to, and I think that we encourage people to stay out of the curveball because we stay out of the curveball. We just, we're innovators. We were like constantly coming up with, I just made a tool using the Velveteen Rabbit to help people get in touch with vulnerability. And it's whatever works. And so what we do is we have a community online which there's a membership for, and basically people can interact with us, each other, the groups, and inside there's tools like gratitude is a big part of being clean and staying clean. Committing, what are you committing to? So we have something called the commitment corner. So it's about tapping in with other people to resources that you can apply to establish the habits that give you the benefits and the results of recovery. I would go ahead. Yeah, no, that's great. I was just thinking like in terms of action. So I'm coming in and say, maybe do I get a food plan? Do I meet with you? Is that how it works? Are those some of the supports that you guys offer? Yeah. So we came up with a system so that people can actually create their own food plan because we feel like everyone's different. Like, why should I eat the same way as you? And when you look at the three of us as coaches, we all eat differently. And yeah, our commonalities. Yeah, of course. So we came out with something called the get out of the food system, which is, oh, it really brings you back to factory reset. And it's therapeutic ketosis, mitochondrial repair, brain healing, eating. And then what we do is that happens for 21 days. And then we teach you how to reintegrate things. So you can have an actual test, like an, like an AB split test. Is this working better or is this working better? And then it gives you the opportunity to gradually advance your carb and find that sort of that sweet spot for you. Now, some people don't even play with it. They just love the results they're getting. And they're just like, I'll do this. David, can you just be a little more specific? That's a food plan in that first 
21 days that you give universally to everybody. So it's a food plan. Yeah. So it's it's basically, yeah. So it's basically like animal-based foods, protein and fat. And there's some vegetable in there and we limit it. We give people an amount to shoot for, but they're, they're able to use their own autonomy to say, is this working? Is this enough food? And to make adjustments right? because we sort of show them how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But some people maintain the food plan for much longer than 21 days. Some people have been doing it for years. What about people who say, oh, I want to be vegan or plant-based? Are you able to accommodate them in that first 21? Yeah. So we, we definitely are honest with them in regards to the brain healing that without certain ingredients, it's very difficult for the brain to heal. And But we don't preclude anyone. But I think that their ability to recover is limited based on the confines of the way and the fuel that they put in their system. And we let them that. Are you completely abstinence-based? Are you a harm reduction approach? Just for our listeners who are thinking, okay, maybe this is the community for me. What does your recovery structure look like for them? Yeah, we 100% believe that there are foods that relate as drugs and that if we use drugs, we will manifest in desire for more drugs. So we are 100% abstinence-based. We don't, we have people that use harm reduction in their home or things like their children, but we really believe that the cravings will manifest if the brain isn't able to heal by removing the substances that cause the cravings in the first place. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. Sure, yeah. So when, okay, so now we're abstinent and now we're fully supported in our community. How do we go from just that piece of recovery and like now I'm abstinence into thriving? in recovery. Yeah, I think it's all about, first of all, interacting with our own resistance to being better. So I think that, I think in a lot of ways, we believe that it's hard for us to be better, to thrive, to establish ourselves. And we have to challenge that. And that's what happens in these sessions. These things come up, we surface. We ask people questions that we, oh, quickly make a list, take 60 seconds right now. And what is what belief that's holding you back? Oh, what's the biggest one you need to deal with? Why don't you circle that one? Let's just focus right there, right? And I think it's, I think that's a big part of it. It's just breaking through the limitations that people have. And I think you can identify them really easily if you know what questions to ask yourself to the point where most of the people that have been with us a little while, they just like coach themselves. I think that's ideally what happens is that they're like, they're finding their own solutions. Can you give an example? So a person comes with what is a self-limiting belief. Give an example of what you would do, please. Yeah, so we call this the alligator closest to your boat. And that's what you would ask them. Basically, if your recovery is the sea craft that you're on, that you're safe in, what is the alligator? What is the threat that's closest to the boat right? And then they would make a list of all the things that are threatening their recovery. We'd give them like 60 seconds to do it. And then we'd ask them to identify, okay, what's the one that's closest to the boat? What's the biggest threat that you need to handle right now? And it might be, it might be a graduation party that's coming. Or it might be a big trip that they're going on. Or it might be that every time their mom comes into town, they okay. lose their recovery. But let me give you one that I just saw on Facebook today. Um, so she, yeah. she's going traveling and yeah. the smells around are so triggering. And they are. And because you're traveling, you can't control it. Every suggestion that was made was like, I become a ravenous beast when I smell these foods. Yeah. So, so the, the first problem is the disbelief that she can do it, that she genuinely believes that it's impossible for her to stay clean in that situation. Because of the long history of trying to stop every time there's a smell, it's, I have to give in. I cannot stand this. 
the, the craving. But the belief inherently is false. Like it's not based in fact, because just because she hasn't stayed clean yet doesn't mean that she won't or can't. And so we have to be able to hand that to someone in such a way where they can say, oh yeah, it is possible. And, and so it's like, the, we just have to open the door like a smidge for people. And then I have this, I had this old house. It was built in 1905 and had these like rickety doors, right? If the door wasn't latched, but it was like open a smidge, the cat could get in. That's what we're doing for people. Basically, we're giving them possibility. Is it possible that belief is even a little untrue? Okay. Like the Byron Katie thing. It's not absolutely true. I might be able to withstand the smell, but I'll be miserable. Then you go back to what is it like now? What was it like when you were in the food all the time, like 100% all the time versus in and out and benefits and changes? Like you get mental clarity back, you get energy back and mm -hmm. you start to create this, like what we call a benefit stack, where if there's some sort of change you want to make, we can put on top of each other, all right, what are the benefits of doing this? How can I make it easier for me to do this? What are the reminders? Do I have sticky notes? Do I write notes on my hands? We talk about breaking your day into quarters, like all these, can I just get through this quarter and stay clean this quarter? All right, what do I need to focus on in the next quarter? Oh yeah, we're going to that restaurant and my husband's going to really want to eat that fried bread thing or how am I going to make it through that quarter? How am I going to make a commitment to myself with someone else? How am I going to follow it through? So when you start breaking these things down into these manageable bite-sized pieces for people, they can do things that they thought were completely impossible. And they're totally bewildered at the fact that they got to bed clean. And they look back and they're like, yeah. And they start to build a little bit more self-efficacy. They start to put a little more momentum. So we really don't focus on motivation because I don't really think I can convince anyone of anything, but we really focus on momentum. Like how do we get people where, because you were been in a car and your car is parked, you're in a parking lot, you're trying to turn your steering wheel. It's, you're like fighting resistance. It's really hard to turn it. But then if you're in reverse or if you're moving forward, it's really easy to turn the wheel. I'd rather you be moving in the completely wrong direction, but I want you in motion. We can redirect you. You can turn the wheel. But if you're not in motion, it's so hard to pivot. So I think there's a lot of power. Literally, I would rather be doing something that was wrong or counterproductive to the recovery than someone that's just doing nothing because we can build momentum and steam. Hey, Food Junkies listeners, we're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. So if you'd like to join Vanessa, be sure to do so by following the link in the show notes. Our workshop is $50 US and it will be held Friday, March 1st, March 8th, and March 15th, 2024 at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, planning for an hour and 15 minutes. Now, if you're in the Sydney, Australia area, that is Saturday, March 2nd, Saturday, March 9th, and Saturday, March 16th at 9.30 a.m., except Saturday, March 16th is one hour earlier, 8.30 a.m. due to the time change. So be sure to check those show notes and join us for this amazing workshop and getting the opportunity to work with Vanessa Credler. Hi, I'm Vanessa. I'm a psychotherapist based in Sydney, Australia, and I'm so excited to invite you to this workshop with Sweet Sobriety this March. It's called Befriending Your Inner Critic with Internal Family Systems. Do you share this experience? Some of us, when we're struggling with food and weight and body image concerns, we often find a loud inner critic inside of us. And those inner critics, they can be so relentless and so persistent and they keep demanding improvement and perfection and action. And they have such high expectations and that can be so exhausting for us and that can lead to a lot of internal conflict, 
and feeling such as shame and anger and frustration and also a sense of worthlessness. And then we hear so much advice around beat your inner critic, silence your inner critic, conquer it, fight it. But I'm wondering what would it be like if we made friends with our inner critic, if we could change our relationship with it so that we actually become allies. And that's what this workshop is all about. So in three live experiential sessions, you learn how to befriend your inner critic through the lens of internal family systems. So in those sessions, you have an opportunity to experience IFS through experiential exercises, to share with other group members, suggestions for creative home play in between sessions, and you'll also be able to download the slide pack and get the recordings if you couldn't join live. And what you'll learn is you'll first gain an overview of internal family systems and what it's all about, why inner critics exist and also experience what it's like to get in touch with your own inner critic. And you'll learn basic techniques of how to meet with and dialogue your inner critic so that you can then eventually gain a pathway towards transforming your relationship with it. So I hope to see you there. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners. How do you work with individuals when you find their focus is on the weight, which often I'm sure when they first come in, they do? Yes, which is funny because I'm a thin male and most of our patrons are women. And I often will coach them and be like, bring this up in Anna or Judy's group because we're all so different in different experience. I haven't experienced weight. That was one of the symptoms I've never faced. I think one of the things we do is we really let the community support them. And I think there's a lot of power in that. And I think people are embarrassed to admit, and this happened like a couple weeks ago, that they're struggling with the fact that they're making all these changes, but they're not making any changes. And no, you're making changes and you're experiencing changes. It's just not that your weight hasn't changed yet. Another thing we really do is the body is going to put precedence on what it needs to do, right? It's going to free up most likely the fat around your organs first that's impacting your ability to be metabolically healthy first. So we have to understand that. We can't like point and choose where we're going to get better physically. And I think that really we have to break away from diet culture, diet mentality, diet everything, because people are coming to us so entrenched in diet, whether they've been dieting or not, they're just influenced by the culture and the media. And and we know that there are people that are obese that are metabolically healthy. So it's not about weight. What I tell people weight is, I tell people weight is the, the gravitational force you exert back on the earth's surface represented as a number, which is like this useful, useless, sorry, useless data point. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't indicate anything. It's just your weight. So we try to really encourage people to let it go. But I mean, it comes back because it's so old. Yeah, it's easy to focus on the body when things don't seem to be going. Especially right. if you look in the mirror. Which... Yeah, exactly. So what is exciting that's coming up for SugarX Global? Are you guys Yeah, so we just had this thought the other day, what would happen if we did a challenge for 30 days? Because we've done five-day challenges, two-day challenge, and we, we all know it takes time for this stuff to sink in. So I think we're really excited about that. And we just released high-performance coaching. So we're finding that what we thought was like an upper level 
level recovery program, we're actually noticing that it was probably mid-level. And when we started it, it was upper level, but now it's mid-level. And that, and so what high performance focuses on clarity, energy, influence, productivity, the one I can't think about, but what it gets people to really focus in on is what can they do now, right now with what they have to become more impactful to themselves and to others. And it just, it lines up beautifully with recovery. Like the concepts of high performance are just like, they just check off the recovery boxes. And so that's what we're releasing now. It should be starting in a week. So we're really excited. And I'm recently a high performance coach and has been a performance coach for a long time. So it's, it's really exciting to know that there's more for people regardless of how much recovery they have and how much experience they have with the tools that are working and regardless how long they've been clean, there's always more, which I think is really good news for it because that's what we were driven by. We were driven by more. This is just more goodness instead of more numbness. So I don't know what high performance goals are and how you could see that as um, helping with recovery. Yeah, so I think, in, for instance, clarity, the concept of clarity, mm-hmm. like knowing and having clarity about where you want to go and how you want to get there. And what that ends up doing is it really impacts the way you make decisions because you're making decisions based on where you see your ideal self going, let's say in a year and how you're going to get there. Example, a a typical one is I'm coming to you because I eat too much and I want to lose a hundred pounds. That's my higher goal. What are you going to do? We don't offer high performance coaching to people that are just coming in. Oh, They have to be, actually, we're only offering it right now to people who've gone through our recovery accelerator program, which is an 18 week intensive recovery tool-based system. So it's, these are people that are, they have recovery under the belt. They don't have a problem staying clean. They, for the most part, they have tools, but they want more out of their life. They know that they could increase their level of meaning. They could have more energy. They could reach for goals that they've procrastinated on or put off or shelved. So it's just like another level. That's how I see another, I don't want to say level of recovery because I don't think recovery is levels, but I think it's like another opportunity for more growth and more transformation. Can you share a little bit about your accelerator program? Because we didn't really talk about that. What is that program and who's a good candidate for it? And what do I get from it? Okay, so the I think the ideal candidate is for someone who doesn't just want support. They want a system that goes chronologically in order to take them through a series of experiences that enable them to expand themselves, to be more comfortable with themselves, to overcome like body-related shame, to really be able to accept I think there's acceptance and then there's like real acceptance, like acceptance of ourselves, acceptance of our situation, acceptance of our disease, like tools that enable us to go and get there. And basically example. give example, please give an example of like full level acceptance of the tools. Yes. Well, that your- yeah. So sure. We have a tool called if my body could speak. And it's basically about how we've totally resisted the things that our body has told us for years. Like, I want rest and you keep me up late. I want to be able to move around and you keep bombarding me with these things that slow me down. So it gets people to have an experience. For instance, that particular situation is really vulnerability with the body. So we can come to terms with really where we're at and where we want to go. Other tools like help us organize our mind. Like we have a tool called Mind Your Mind and it just helps you categorize and then also rate. So you know which is something that you need to work on next. So because I think a lot of the issues is that people don't know where to focus. 
And they also look at it like it's work. And we really want to flip it into this is exciting. This is an opportunity. This is fun. And I think that's what, like, we always like, we want to take someone from somewhere to somewhere where they, they have possibility or they have like, a personal experience of hope, not just hope as an idea, but knowing it's possible for them to really get better. So, yeah, so this 18 weeks long, every week we release what we call a growth accelerator. Sometimes there's more than one and it brings them to have an experience with the tool, with themselves growing. And then in the session, there's a lot of, I would, I call it two-on-one work, but it's usually you and a partner. You're working through some experience together. And that, especially when people are, that's so powerful, especially when it's so powerful to go against the disease of addiction in a way. So yeah, so it's 18 weeks long and it takes them through all these systems and tools. And the, in the end, we end with the last session is called celebration. And I think we really want to take people to celebrate life, celebrate recovery. And the coaching one is beyond, it's sort of celebration and beyond. Yes, it's like a whole other level. I don't, it's my first experience with high performance coaching was mind blowing. Like I didn't realize the possibility that I had. And so we are just bringing that to the table just for food addicts. Attention deficit uh, disorder, which is part of your history. I know uh, how have you been able to use some of the tool and your sobriety, your food sobriety to deal with that? So I made so many dietary changes over the last oh five or six years. And I found that for the most part, I didn't really, once I went keto, which I've been keto for a while, at least in a broad sense, once I did that, I didn't really notice many improvements. I had been on meds since I was in the first grade. So I was like six and I could not function without them. I did it. I did it for three years, but it stunk. It was so painful and so hard. I just, I was like a walking dead man and I had no idea. So I think like the food helped me to a degree, but then it didn't help me with the detox withdrawal. And I felt like I was trapped in brain fog for two and a half years. And I was working with, was working with Bitten and some other people and thing really broke that. I ended up actually back on the medicine. And then I had a mold occurrence in my home and it was suggested to me to go carnivore. And I said, Bitten told me to do it. So I did it. It's like, she tells me to jump. I say, okay, how high? So I did it. And I, I think that impacted it. And I was able to have my dose of my meds from the original dosage to what it is. And I have the same level of functionality. But I think, honestly, the biggest thing yeah. that impacted my ability to function as a human being, to run a to be a parent and all that stuff was the high performance stuff. It was the, that I can manufacture my own energy, that I can, what I call it willful feeling. Like I can like, I have words down here, how I want a piece of paper. You can't send a podcast, can't see it, but there's words on this piece of paper. This is how I wanted to show up today. So I have things that I can do to hone in on the result that I want to get. And I couldn't do that. And that wasn't from the food. It was more from tools. And the other thing is this concept of recovery protection, where I can look at what the main problem is and like what my behavior is and what's causing it. And then I can be like, oh, what do I want to get? Okay, what could I do differently? And then like, I can use that for anything. It's not just about not being in the food. I could use it to improve my marriage. I could use it about not being a crankpot at 8 p.m. when my kids are trying to get to bed. It, anything. So like any problem or issue or thing I want to improve, I can apply. All right, what's my cue? What's the trigger? What starts it? And we call that the cue. And then, all right, after the cue happens, what do you normally do? That's your custom. And then, okay, as a result of the custom, what's your consequence? So just use food as an example because it's easy to understand. Three o'clock, three o'clock crash. People have been dieting. They're by 3 p.m. They're dead. They're tired. They have no energy left. That's the cue. The 3 p.m. crash. What's your custom? 
Oh, they go to the vending machine and they get a chocolate bar or whatever it is. And what's the custom? Guilt, shame, remorse, exhaustion. They're beating themselves up. All right. What if at 3 p.m. instead of going to the vending machine, you took a quick walk outside in the sunshine, like a brisk walk for 10 minutes? How are you going to feel as a result of that walk? Oh, you're going to feel energized. You're going to feel good. Like you did something positive for yourself. You're going to feel the warm fuzzies because you're like taking care of yourself for a change. And so all we did was we changed the custom, totally different result. So with my ADHD, I just started changing customs. When there were certain triggers, I altered my behavior. And then I started altering the outcomes. And then what happened was my relationships with people started changing. But it wasn't anything but habits, identifying. And when you go through our system and we ask questions like, how would they make you think? How would they make you feel? And we really, we push you to go to the next layer, go to the next layer. It becomes emotional for someone. It's more visceral. It's more impactful. They feel the benefit of it before they've even done it. So they're really driven to get there. They're tired or they don't want to struggle more. So they're more willing to do those things that are hard. And the things that work in recovery protection are hard. They're, but when you pull the trigger on them, generally speaking, they work. You created them. You decided it would make you feel that way. And the hard is worth it, right? Oh, I love hard. Yeah. If I didn't do something hard today, did I live? I exactly. Love I love the challenge. Would you be able to speak to some of the unique challenges of being a man in food addiction recovery? And I know you said we find the same thing in sweet sobriety. I'm sure in Sugar X, it's probably predominantly female, a lot of your members. So what do you think it is going to take for there to be that kind of shift where men feel more comfortable? I think first of all, in general, and I don't want to, I don't want to overgeneralize here, the diet industry attacks women. Listen, the diet industry has a 95% failure rate. Okay. What that means is, would you go to a dentist that cleaned four of your teeth? Okay. No, you wouldn't. That's, those are the results they're promising. And then, and then in tiny print, they write results. These results are atypical or something like that. Right. And they attack women. So I think women and I think women and men Again, I don't want to overgeneralize and I know nothing about gender really other than that I'm a man and that's how I identify. But we approach vanity differently. The other thing is I think the dad bod plays a role. It's normal for a male to get overweight in the belly as a dad or as a middle-aged man. And I just, I think it's almost normal. So we say we've twisted the word normal to be normalized. And then we took normalized and we broke it up with normal lies. Okay, so it's, it's a normal lie for a dad to become obese in the belly. And so I think we have to like tack it that way. But I also think that most of the people that are willing to work in recovery, at least in a deep way, tend to be female. I was really intrigued by how you said that men have a different um, view on vanity. Can you elaborate on that? That's mind blowing. Yeah, so it's funny because I coach women mostly mm -hmm. as a man. And to the point where it's more challenging for me. I have a partner and we coach each other and he's a man. It's more difficult for me to be one-on-one -on -one with a man than it is to be one-on-one -on -one with a woman because I think I'm just so exposed to women. I have two daughters, a wife, even my cat's female. I'm just, it's, I'm surrounded by women in the way that they think. And I'm a very like sensitive guy. That's my thing. I probably very embrace, embrace the divine feminine. I think a man's approach to vanity isn't so emotional. It's more like cognitive. I think it's it's just how men think versus how women think in general. I don't know that we've figured out as a field, as coaches, how to really help men. Denial isn't more cemented. It's just not being attacked by things like vanity in the same way. A woman is, now it may be so. Again, I've never had a weight issue, but 
I didn't look in the mirror and feel shame the way that I hear a lot of women do. I think you nailed it when you said the normal eye lies, because uh, when a man looks in the mirror being overweight, they don't have the same sh the sense that the shame is quite as deep as it is with women, because we're, we're, we grew up with it. By the time puberty hits and you start to gain weight, women are like, oh, my God, I've got to lose weight. And men are like, wow, I'm gained weight. That's great. You know, and I'm totally and I'm going to be honest, the men that we're helping are yeah. of the sensitive variety. I'm just I'm, I can think of five or six men that I work with pretty closely right now, and they're very kind hearted, sensitive, emotionally oriented men. So how do we reach everyone else? I, I, like everything else is funny. Like we have all this advances in science and thinking and we basically result in trial and error. You know, I call them stupid plans. Okay, if a friend were asking me two suggestions on how to get better sleep, what would I suggest? Oh, a sleep mask and I'll take my phone out of bed. It's, oh, okay, let me test that out and see how it works. It's not ingenious, but we're really just testing things over and over individually and collectively. So it's a really good question. I remember Tony, a food addict coach and also a cook. I talked about his group, which was mainly men. He said, that there was a main difference in their choice of foods. They had the, the barbecue wings and pizzas, whereas women tended to dessert. But he also said, Interesting. That, yeah, he also said men, when they came to him, it was the loss of control that they had. It wasn't their weight, even though they were over obese. That's true. Was the fact that they couldn't control and that they were very embarrassed. That was where their shame lay there. Yeah. And that's been my experience, too, mm -hmm. with others. Now come to think of it, he nailed it. It's the loss of control and the pride, men mm -hmm. and pride. Yes. And pride, my goodness, pride. Yeah. Right. And this, I got this. Yes, exactly. coach. And we've been brainwashed to that. We being men, from my experience, and especially with sports. And of course, you have these subcultures like those who did wrestling and had to make weight and or male gymnasts. And but I think that's such a small group. But I think loss of control because their struggle is that they want nothing more than to stop, but they can't. Tell us about your book, Fix for Cravings. Yeah, I think it's largely based on the artist's way, which is basically a process that people go through as a group to focus in on something that they want to become better at or discover. It could be like writing a book. It could be like doing. And basically, it's a system that takes people through a series of like 12 weeks to get in touch with their themselves and food and what it's done to them and where they want to be with it. And it works them gradually and they're embedded inside of it to make commitments to themselves and to each other that something they're going to specifically focus in on in their life oriented. And then to be honest with you, the food plan is there's two totally different options and one is much more simple and the other one is has a lot more volume. And we decided to give people the two options so they could decide which one they thought would work better for them. I think it, it just gives people, again, a system to plug into and to walk themselves through so that they can, with help, of the book, of the people they're journeying with, crush their cravings. Do you use the book in your program? I use pieces of it. And the, and the food plan, to a large degree, was based on it in, in its infancy. I mean, mm -hmm. the food plan has just changed um, because we really wanted, that was when we came in, we just started. We really wanted people to be able to create their own food plan. We wanted them to be able to have autonomy. We definitely give them some guidelines. We call them the toxic triangle, sugar grains and seed oils, which pretty much eliminates all processed food. Like it just wipes it out. And we give them guidelines like that, but we really want them to be making their own decisions on what they're willing to do and willing to do. And we've had people who are doing well on what they were doing. They want to optimize. So they try the new system and it doesn't work. It doesn't work for everyone. So you have to be able to trust your instincts. And I think to a large degree, addicts have lost that. They've lost their ability to trust their instincts. 
We want them to learn how to do that again. Being in control of their food plan gives them some practice. Thank you. If you had to summarize, what is the biggest challenge that you have in your work, either individually or in a larger way in the food addiction community or in the world? What would you say it is? What's the thing that you... I think it's probably denial. I think, and it's not just denial about the addiction. Contentment, too, this is going to sound crazy, contentment. People are get clean and they feel like their life is great because they're not drugging anymore or they're not using and they start settling for contentment. They have peace between their ears, even though they could have so much more. Mm. And then I think that contentment, that soft, comfy pillow, we get really used to that. We need something to help us challenge that so we don't settle. But denial is huge. Now it's huge, not just of the food, but like contentment, I think, is denial of the fact that our life could have more meaning. Yeah, if I had to pick one thing, I'd say it. That comfort crisis that Michael yeah. Easter talks about. Yeah, it's Ryan Holiday, the Stoic, all that stuff that like pick your heart. And yeah, absolutely. And comfort is like, for instance, courage. Okay, courage is an antidote for a lot of problems that we face today. But you don't need to employ courage if it's easy for you. So that means we have to constantly be changing out what we're being courageous about because like cold showers are hard when you start them, but or if it's January and you live where I live, but it's not hard for me to do a cold shower in August. It doesn't take courage. So I think we have to keep on cycling through and picking areas to improve in and setting goals and reaching for them constantly. You said you have that 30-day challenge coming up. Is there anything else that you have coming up that you're excited about? I'm excited about just seeing people transform more, especially mm. as we release high-performance coaching. My experience with it as an addict was like, this is so designed for addicts. It really wasn't. It was just designed for people that wanted more out of life, but it's so designed for addicts. The questions, just the curriculum is incredible. So I'm really excited to just see people light up even more. And as we just continue to evolve as a community and as people individually and collectively. Yeah, it's an exciting time in the recovery, food addiction recovery space. It's like, it's just really, there's more papers coming out, there's more research and it's being more validated and openly discussed. And it is, I think, an exciting time to be doing what we're doing. Yeah, and as you see Judy or Anna in, in London, anyone say, hey, they'd love to meet you and hear about what your successes and your struggles are. So we have a signature question. Yeah. And it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction, what would it be? And then what about, what would you say to that young baker? Yeah. yeah. What would I tell myself? I think for me, it wasn't, there wasn't, I just didn't identify with the pain and the suffering the way that I think a lot of people did. And so my bottom was really high. My bottom was that I lost a job and that I had to reevaluate my life and I just decided to get clean. So what would I tell myself is, I mean, you can only act in what you're aware of. So as soon as you come to terms with something, try to address it as soon as you can. Be courageous, even if it scares the crap out of you. Just do something. And that little baker, what would I tell that little baker i probably tell him you didn't know what you didn't know you didn't know what you didn't know and and that a hobby doesn't have to be a drug because all my hobbies were because so. of that addictive addictive mindset right absolutely yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah. awesome thank you so much for being here today it's yes, my David. absolute pleasure thank yeah, you so thank much thank you david thank you thanks for joining us this week on food junkies recovery from food addiction Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. 
Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.